0: Hello and welcome to PainCast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today, it's our pleasure to have Dr. Michael Mash joining us. Dr. Michael Mash is a physical therapist in the United States. He is also the founder of Barbell Rehab, an education company helping fitness and rehab professionals improve the management of their clients dealing with pain. He has a special interest in resistance training for improving strength, power, and longevity. In this episode, we talked about conceptualizing strength training from the biopsychosocial perspective, the role of strength training in pain management, and how physical therapists can work with fitness professionals. Enjoy. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on PainCast. How are you doing today?
1: Good, Tiffany. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to see what we're going to chat about.
0: Same for me. To start off, can you introduce who you are, what are you doing, and what a typical week looks like for you?
1: Yeah, sure. So my name is Dr. Michael Mash. I'm the owner and founder of Barbell Rehab. We're a continuing education company uh, for fitness and rehab professionals. And my main job is to run the business. So depending on whether I'm out teaching live courses or not, my week can look very, very, very different. So I just, as you know, I just got back from the CanFit Pro Conference where I taught our two-day course and gave three different lectures about pain and rehab and so I just got back from that. And now I have 20 days at home before I start going out and flying out to teach our fall courses, the two-day live course. So as a business owner, when I'm at home, I am mainly doing a lot of social media posts, working on our podcast, working on our free research roundup, different marketing things. So I wear a bunch of different hats as a as a business owner. And then about twice a month, I will fly out to a different gym and teach our two-day course. So that's what it looks like now for me.
0: Well, that sounds very, uh, very exciting. And you're all over the place uh, educating people, which is a very meaningful thing to do. Why have you started Barbell Rehab?
1: So it's an interesting question because the reasons why I started it uh, aren't the same reasons as to why I'm keeping it going. So I started it back in 2016, just as an Instagram page, because I just wanted to share workout tips and knowledge about working out for people in pain. So it started out directly just helping active individuals. And I really had a powerlifting niche in the beginning, because I had the goal of getting every single human being that I possibly could doing the bench press, the back squat, and the conventional deadlift. And that's how I started the brand. And then about a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I started to realize that there was an even bigger problem that I wanted to help solve. And that was just the massive inactivity problem we have as a society. So once I started seeing stats, like only 23% of people are meeting physical activity guidelines, the business kind of molded to, we are just now trying to promote strength training on a global level in any shape or form uh preferably barbells because i still i mean i'm barbell rehab i still have a big barbell bias but the bigger thing that we want to try and do is how do we get more people engaged in resistance training so that's kind of the niche that i've settled in now and helping coaches and clinicians better work with their clients who have pain so how do you work with clients with back pain knee pain hip pain and how do we make sure that even those folks get to participate effectively and safely in resistance training
0: I really share your passion of promoting strength training. And I do really have a bias towards strength training, so MSU. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, when you started out the Instagram page, you wanted to give tips for people with pain to strength train. Has that always been a passion of yours being, you know, going through physiotherapy school and being, becoming a clinician?
1: Yeah. So that goes way back. So when I was 15, I was I hurt my shoulder. I, I'm, I'm a baseball guy. So I've always been a baseball pitcher since I've been 10. And then in early high school, I started to have shoulder pain. Um, and I was fortunate enough that the athletic trainer at our high school was very well-rounded and very well-knowledged in resistance training. So I went to him and said, hey, my shoulder's bugging me. And he said, all right, we're going to have you do some rack pulls. was like, rack pulls? What are rack pulls? And that's when I first put a barbell in my hand. I always remember that day. It was doing a rack pull from knee height with 135. And that was the day I fell in love with strength training and also kicked off that idea of maybe strength training is exactly what we need for folks in pain. So (laughs) the rest of high school, I ended up falling in love more with barbell training than baseball. By the time it was my senior year, I was just so consumed with enjoying strength training and seeing how it can work for people in pain. And then ever since then, and even through undergrad and physio school, I've had a burning desire to get more people who have pain engaged in strength training. So that's where it kind of comes from.
0: Before we go back into the conversation, let's just backtrack a little bit and define strength training. How do you define that just so we're on the same page?
1: I would say that it is putting either some sort of Mechanical stress on the musculoskeletal system via external means, such as barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, you have it, or internal resistance, things like push ups, pull ups, but loading the musculoskeletal system in a progressive manner is how I would define it.
0: Oh, that's good. Both you and I have a passion for rehab and fitness, and particularly in strength training. Why are you particularly passionate about strength training? What got you in love in this? And what are the benefits for strength training for anyone?
1: Yeah, so I'm a big believer that every human should be doing some sort of strength training. And I mean, if we look at the activity guidelines, something as simple as two times a week, full body would really, really help a lot of individuals. For me, um, there's a couple of reasons I started in it, as I mentioned, one with, with the baseball and realizing I wanted to throw, throw faster. And once I was told that strength training was the key to that, those were my early motivations, right? As a teenager. And I can't lie. I mean, every teenage boy wants to get stronger and look good. So that was also an early motivation of mine. And as you start to get older, you start to realize that there's even more, more beneficial aspects of strength training. So now I've kind of reframed my love for strength training as a way to allow me to maximally participate in the things that I enjoy doing for as long as I possibly can. So I think a lot of people can kind of get down with that rationale and. Part of helping people engage in resistance training is by showing them how it's gonna improve their quality of life. Because if you just tell somebody, hey, you should start doing exercises. I mean, that's not gonna work. Why would somebody just want to do exercises? You have to peel that onion back another layer and figure out the why. And the why is usually why I wanna be able to do X, Y, and Z better. So if you can find out that why, that's how you can really start to encourage that behavioral change, especially for our older adults you asked about the benefits. I mean, there's more than I can even count reduced chances of sarcopenia, which is muscle loss with aging, osteopenia, osteoporosis, diabetes, you name it. I mean, I'm not just a big believer of it. The evidence is there to show that strength training is the fountain of youth. So that's where I'm coming from. And the more people that we can get engaged in it, the better, and then the better quality of life people have, the more increased ability they'll have to engage in meaningful things as they age. So my goal is to get every single human strength training from age eight to 80 or as long as they possibly can.
0: And really um, that's the common goal between really rehab and strength training as well. As you said, we want to help people to be able to maximally participate in what they want to do in their daily lives and their goals in life and all the function they need to perform and I really see the relationship between the rehab goal and the strength training goal. 100%. So you as a physical therapist doing this, um, are there some other reasons that you're putting these two together or basically that's the reason that you're, you're putting barbell and rehab together?
1: I think it really comes down to trying to dispel the myth that when people are in pain that they should rest. So I think that's a bigger issue that I'm trying to tackle as a brand. And we're trying to push that message as far as we can, that complete rest isn't the best thing for musculoskeletal aches and pains. In fact, it's probably the exact thing you don't want to do. So we are out there trying to show trainers and physios, And other fitness professionals and other rehab professionals that yes, like you can continue to work out in the presence of pain and the benefits that you're going to see from it are going to be more than just the physical, right? Getting people to reduce kinesiophobia, reducing fear of movement, encouraging people to move, showing people that, Hey, exercises, even if they hurt a little bit, that hurt doesn't equal harm. So there's all of these benefits because I just see too many people the second that they have some sort of ache or pain. And I worked as a full-time physio for four years in a hospital outpatient setting when I came out of school. And I just saw about how people would start to have back pain in their 20s and 30s, and then they would rest for 20, 30 years. And now I would get them in their 50s, right? Where, oh, I hurt my back when I was in my 20s. And um, now now what do I do? And I was the first person to tell them, hey, maybe like getting moving and starting to strength train can be exactly what you need. So I'm rambling on a little bit right now, but hopefully um, we're, we're getting to the point that I'm trying to make here.
0: Right, and I hope certainly the tide is turning that we slowly as fitness professionals and rehab professionals understand that when you have pain, probably complete rest is not the best thing to do, given nuances.
1: Yeah, and I'm definitely seeing a paradigm shift, at least in, well, I'm fortunate enough to network with a lot of the physios who are already forward thinking, like myself, like getting movement and resistance training into the program. But I mean, it's not always been like that. People like yourself are also helping moving that cause forward with showing that physios should be trained in strength training. And I mean, after all, we are the movement experts, so we should start acting like it, right? Teaching some of these multi-compound joint movements, like the squat, the deadlift, the press, and their regressions, obviously, all of the different ways that you can load those patterns and getting that into the clinical aspect of things.
0: So obviously, this sort of forward thinking requires a certain understanding of pain and what pain really means, that sometimes hurt doesn't equal harm, and all sorts of concepts around pain neuroscience. So you have been educated in those areas and have a great understanding of what pain really means. How does that understanding of pain inform your philosophy around strength training and rehab?
1: Great question, and it heavily influences it. So we teach all of the lifts through the biopsychosocial model of pain, meaning that we realize that for every pain experience, that there's going to be biological, psychological, and social aspects to that pain experience. So that helps influence the way we teach in a couple of different ways. Number one, me as a brand and me as a person are a lot more liberal on form, on what constitutes correct form and what types of forms we're going to allow in the gym. When I first started this company, I was very, very down the rabbit hole of the way we lift directly correlates to pain. So if somebody had bad form on a squat or bad form on a deadlift, and they also had pain, then I immediately jumped to the conclusion that it was the form causing the pain. I would say things like, oh, you're letting your back round during your deadlift. That's why you have back pain. Or you're letting your knees come too far forward in the squat. That's why you have knee pain. And a lot of folks are still out there teaching that model, but it's based on this reductionist idea that pain is always due to biology or biomechanical factors. So over the last five years, we've kind of updated our narratives to realize that, yes, form matters, but it's just one aspect of the pain experience. So we rather than telling people exactly how to do a lift, we'd like to use the term of form as a spectrum and basically putting up a bandwidth or giving clients a bandwidth of acceptable forms that they can self-organize into that would work best for them. Like example would be a push-up. Some people do better with their elbows tucked by their side. some people do a little better and feel better with their arms flared out to the side. So we want to allow that freedom for the client to self-select what arm slot works best for them versus just pigeonholing them into very specific ways of doing things. So that's one aspect of like how we teach the lifts through a biopsychosocial model. And then the second aspect would be realizing that when people get better or people have pain reduction as a result of strength training, we realize that it's not always because they got stronger. So there's like a bunch of reasons as to why somebody could get better from strength training, things like reduction in fear and anxiety and catastrophization. When you take somebody that doesn't quite trust their body, and now you put a barbell or a dumbbell in their hands, suddenly they're going to start to realize, okay, maybe I don't need to be as fearful. Maybe I'm stronger than I thought. So now you get this improved pain self-efficacy. They feel more confident in themselves. And things like exercise-induced analgesia, which is just a phenomenon that exercising in general can help reduce pain. It has nothing to do with like correcting specific abnormalities or asymmetries. We just know that strength training and getting the body moving in general can lead to pain reduction on that global scale. And then you're gonna also see like brain adaptations at the level of the spinal cord and the brain too. So all of these things, we realize that The old days of, you hurt, I'm going to make you stronger, so that doesn't hurt anymore. Yes, it holds true, but the reasons as to why, there there's many, many of them. So that's how we kind of look at strength through that biopsychosocial lens.
0: Mm, That's amazing. I'm interested in digging a little more into the two fundamental, um, I guess you can call them principles of barbell rehab. So in terms of seeing every lift from a biopsychosocial model... Other than acknowledging that form is not all that contributes to pain, what are some of the considerations that you would teach fitness or rehab professionals to think about?
1: For sure. Number one would be cue less. So when I first started, I got my CSCS when I was in PT school. So I used to train people while I was in school and when I was fresh out as a physio, um, I used to over cue. In the beginning, for beginners, I wanted people to do the lift exactly like the textbook said. Hey, so I would just overwhelm people with cues in the beginning. This is where I want your elbows to go. This is where I want your eyes to go. And when we do that, it doesn't give the person a chance to self organize, which is the process of people going through that motor learning phase to figure out what joint angles work best for them. So I think teaching the lifts through the biopsychosocial lens makes the coach and the physio more of a guide versus like the one in charge of the operator and it's guiding people towards movement solutions that would be best for them versus telling them exactly how to do things so that's where we get to like the constraints led approach where we can adjust the environment and give people a task to solve versus telling them exactly how to do it prime example would be like let's say somebody is letting their knees travel too far forward during the squat now There's nothing wrong with knee forward squat position. It's not inherently dangerous or anything like that, but let's say they're letting them go too far forward for your liking. And we want to encourage them to not go so far forward. Well, maybe we put a board or some sort of stick in front of their foot. And now we tell them to squat without letting their knee touch that stick. So rather than telling them how to squat, we created some sort of Environmental change, we arrange the environment in a way that they can self organize and figure the problem out themselves versus us telling them exactly how to do it. So, setting up little movement experiments like that, I think, plays well with the biopsychosocial model of pain. And I think it just really comes down to encouraging that self exploration, letting people explore movement in a non judgmental way, removing all of these stigmas that we once thought of oh don't move that way or you hurt yourself or don't flex your back that way or you might herniate your disc if we can remove all of that stigma and just let people explore movement that's i think going to be the way forward that's what's going to allow us to reduce pain get people to trust their bodies more and improve resiliency
0: when you talk about movement experiments is the goal of the movement experiment to guide them to a movement pattern that you would like to see or something else?
1: That is a great question. And the short answer to that would be yes. Obviously, there's going to be situations where we want to guide people towards more optimal movement solutions for them. Okay. So I'm not here. We, won't, we don't want to swing this pendulum so far and just let and say, oh, let people lift however they want. That doesn't work in powerlifting, right? <laughs> People still deadlift and squat and bench press differently in powerlifting, but we do start to see some common themes emerge uh, from top competitors, right? When you sumo deadlift, the whole idea is let's reduce range of motion. Let's reduce vertical displacement of the bar and let's wedge the hips and get the hips as horizontally close to the barbell. So... If you're coaching somebody to sumo deadlift and you want them to improve their one rep max, well then yes, we definitely want to provide cues, biomechanical cues to help them self-organize into positions that would be best for them. So yes, setting up movement experiments from a performance standpoint, absolutely. We want to try and help guide people towards what we think as the coach would be a better optimal movement solution for them. From the rehab perspective, let's say somebody's in pain, oftentimes setting up movement experiments can either show them that we can get them into positions that they think are painful, but we can get them into that position in a different way. So we call this expectancy violation. For example, if somebody has pain with forward bending or lumbar flexion, let's say they're standing up and I ask them to bend down, touch their toes, and they say, ouch, that hurts my back. I might set up a movement experiment of how can I get them into flexion in a different way to show them that maybe not all spinal flexion is bad. What can you do? Maybe you get them in quadruped and you ask them to take their butt back to their heels. Maybe you put them sitting in a chair and ask them now, can you touch their toes? So if you can change the environment, you might get a difference in pain. Where now somebody's in quadruped and they can go into lumbar flexion. So I guided them towards that movement solution. I said, Hey, why don't you try getting on all fours and taking your butt back to your heels and let me know how that feels? And maybe they say, Oh, that feels better. And then you can say, Hey, look, you actually just went through that. That's a very similar range of motion. You've got this. You're capable of it. And then you can start to see that light bulb turn on where people start to say, Oh, maybe I'm not as broken. Maybe I can do this. And then that kick starts this whole psychological shift away from fragility and I can't do things to resiliency and I'm capable.
0: Very cool. That segues really well to the idea that we can use the biopsychosocial lens in strength training to facilitate less kinesiophobia, less fear avoidance, more empowerment, more self-efficacy over pain. And that actually I don't know if, you, uh, if you're familiar with the cognitive functional therapy. I did an episode on it earlier in the podcast. That really blends well to the idea that you set up movement experiments to demonstrate that people can perform these movements, maybe just with a little bit of a modification. And they can be empowered over their pain and they don't need to think that, oh, every time I go down, it's going to be painful. So I'm not doing this at all.
1: Yeah, it all plays so nicely together. Cognitive functional therapy, ACT active and commitments therapy, all of these different ways of looking at pain through the biopsychosocial model, which is what all of these different things are doing. We kind of stay up to date on all of that and real and try and package it up and say, well, how does this apply to barbell lifting? Because or just how does this apply to strength training in general? Because Strength training is more than just the physical. There are going to be all of these mental, emotional, cognitive processes going on in the background with strength training as well.
0: Can you share some stories of how you've approached strength training with a person with pain?
1: Sure. How about a couple of good ones? And then I'll let you know what I did early on in my career that I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do that again.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: Okay. So the way I approach people working with clients in pain is the overarching theme of finding out what they can do and kind of de-emphasizing what they're not able to do. So on the initial assessment, obviously you want to gather the data of what are you having trouble doing? Because if you find out what they're having trouble doing, you can help them guide them back to their meaningful activities. But once we do that, I like to pivot to finding entry points into movements. So- rather than trying to find what's broken and fix it, I like to find what they're having trouble doing and figure out what they can do instead. Because if we keep things uplifting, if we keep things empowering, if we figure out that somebody is just having shoulder pain with a bench press and no amount of modification to it is going to help reduce it, what can they do? Can they dumbbell bench? Can they do push-ups? Can they do machine presses? Anything, right? Anything that they can do that will continue to load the musculoskeletal system in a tolerable fashion. So I basically take all of the major movement patterns, figure out what hurts, make modifications to them, change the way that they do it. And I keep it really global so that we can keep people, as somebody like uh, researcher, Bronnie Thompson likes to say, is flexible persistence, right? Just stay moving forward. And that's a little different than how some other folks would like to do it. Other folks will find an impairment and fix it. And okay, this is what's broken. Here's the corrective exercise that you need to do to fix it. And the thing is, it can still work. It can still work. We see results of people. We see people getting results with that every day on social media. But the thing is, the question is, why is it working? And if we really look at pain through that biopsychosocial lens, just picking an impairment and trying to fix it is a very reductionist way because pain is more than just Biology and biomechanics, right? There's all of these different factors, so that's kind of how I work with people in pain. And one situation that really comes to mind that I talk about at our live courses was I was working with an Olympic lifter one time who, she had right hip pain during all of her squatting activities. So at the bottom of the clean, at the bottom of the snatch, any type of squat, she was getting an anterior hip pinch. And she told me that she used to squat with significant toe out on the right, and that's when she did not have pain. Then when she was told by a coach that the coach wanted to make the stance look more symmetrical, she turned that right foot back in, and this started to light up all of her pain. So here was an example of somebody who adapted to an asymmetry, pain-free, and when we corrected that asymmetry, tried to make it symmetrical, it actually caused pain. And when I assessed her hips, I saw that her right hip was significantly retroverted and the left hip was basically antiverted. So what happened was she didn't know this. She didn't know that she had an an anatomical difference in hip version side to side. She didn't know that, but guess what she did? She self-organized in the position that worked best for her, which was toe out on the right. So many folks may try and correct that. My treatment was to quote unquote treatment was to give her permission to turn that foot back out again and everything kind of calmed down. So a lot of my sessions come down to, do we let people adapt to their asymmetries? Oftentimes you're going to see the answer is more often yes than no. So that's basically how I look at it from that 30,000 foot view. Mistakes that I made early on in my career, and this is usually the opposite mistake of other physios, but I overloaded people too much early in my career. Right. Physio as a whole, I still think has an underdosing problem. But me coming out of high school, coming out of college, just loving lifting so much, I did have a tendency to overload people. We would get little old ladies in the clinic that would come in with tennis elbow completely detrained. And day one, I'm like, all right, we're doing push ups, we're doing rows, we're doing wrist extension. And, uh, radial deviation. And more often than not, this would just flare people up in the beginning. So I did learn that for people, especially people that are in a lot of irritable pain, like high levels of it, we don't need to bombard them with a ton of load on day one. We can still see pain reduction with some lower level exercises. So that's what I have to say about those two questions.
0: Ah, very interesting. And I actually have met a person with significantly asymmetrical squat as well and then mm-hmm. i thought about that like why is it going on and i looked into her for more anti-version and indeed there is a, a an anatomical asymmetry there so i <laughs> reminds me of that uh particular client very cool so you you have blended your passion for barbell training slash resistance training and your expertise in physiotherapy um in barbell rehab and not what you do today, how would a typical physiotherapist, let's say with the knowledge and passion of strength training or powerlifting, help their clients in a typical physiotherapy setting?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think um, there's a lot of opportunities for improvement here. I think if you're a physio listening to this and you're interested in incorporating more strength and conditioning principles, um, don't overwhelm yourself. You don't need uh, the latest greatest equipment. You don't need four or five, 600 pounds of Olympic weightlifting plates. You don't need dumbbell sets the whole way up to 150. What you need to think about is more of just these big functional patterns, the hinge, the squat, the lunge, the overhead press, the pull down, the horizontal press and the horizontal pull, thinking of movements in those patterns and then scaling them down and meeting them, meeting your clients where they're at things like having people do push-ups on a windowsill, things like having people do standard banded rows. Like these are all exercises that we see in traditional physiotherapy that I think is underrated. So I like to look at these patterns and not necessarily having to put a barbell on everybody's hands, but hey, can somebody do a 10 pound kettlebell deadlift? Can they pick a kettlebell up off the floor? So just thinking of them in the big patterns and then using the equipment you have to keep people and match the pattern and the variation to the client's need, I think that, or the patient's need, I think that's going to be the biggest bang for your buck approach to at least implementing these principles of strength conditioning in rehab. Oh, and number two, not being afraid to step outside of three sets of 10. (laughs) (laughs) So not to bash three sets of 10. It's totally fine. If somebody's doing three sets of 10, that's better than doing no sets of 10. So I don't want this to be a bash fest on three sets of 10, but don't be afraid to go lower rep, even with your older adults. I loved five by five sit to stands with my older adults, especially in when I was doing stroke rehab and when I was doing spinal cord rehab, allowing people to. Open their mind to different loading parameters, more sets and less reps can often help folks train more on that strength curve as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think good exercise prescription is always very important in rehab. And, you know, we're, move- we're the movement experts. And as a part of people's rehab journey, we'll give them exercises. But how do you go about the problem of adherence and. Mm we only spend so much time with a particular client and we give them these exercises, go home and do it, even though we can incorporate all the strength and conditioning knowledge we have, how do we get them to do it?
1: That is the golden question, right? Because we're not in the game of just prescribing exercise. We're in the game of encouraging behavioral change. So there's a couple of strategies I have to improve adherence. Number one is make sure people understand the why behind the exercises. If you just tell them, do these five exercises and you'll feel better for a lot of folks, that's not enough to push the needle forward and encourage that behavioral change. There has to be meaning behind this. Like these exercises are going to help you do X, Y, and Z. If you can keep the purpose behind the exercise tied to their deeper goal, they're going to be more likely to do them for example, let's say you're working with a 50 year old who has shoulder pain. They're not there to help you fix their shoulder pain. They're there because they want their shoulder pain to be fixed so that they can go, I don't know, play catch in the backyard with their kid. If you can find that deeper meaning and then extrapolate the reasoning behind the exercise to show them, that'll it help them achieve that deeper meaning for why they're there. They're going to be more likely to do it. So that's number one. And number two, making sure there's not too many exercises and you don't ask them to do it too frequently. Uh, my uncle a couple of months ago went to a physical therapist for knee pain and he came to me and he was, and you could tell he was a little just like nervous. He's like, I got 10 exercises to do three times a day. And, and he's just like, I'm, I'm just not getting them done. I, I want to get better. Do I, do I really need to do all 10 exercises three times a day? I'm just busy. And he was like all of these different barriers, So the the short answer is no, don't give people 10 exercises to do three times a day, because guess how many they're going to do? None of them. (laughs) It doesn't seem achievable. So making sure that you're giving them minimum effective dose. So I give people two to three exercises and I'm no longer doing, Hey, make sure you at all costs, three sets of 10, twice a day. You're not going to get better, right? No SIBOing people keep it as bare minimum as possible and have them only do it as many times that you think is needed to get the change. So those would be my two tips, making sure you don't overwhelm people with too many exercises done too frequently. And I totally just blanked on the first thing I said. What was the first thing I said?
0: (laughs) Give them the reason why.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, the reason, the reason, exactly.
0: Yeah, so in terms of giving the reason why, um, sometimes I hear people saying, Oh, if you get stronger, your pain will be less or strengthening the muscles around your knee will help with your knee pain. Well, do we have a better approach to explaining why we're giving these exercises?
1: Yeah. And I'm not afraid to lean into that narrative from time to time because we do have evidence that shows, hey, if we get your quad stronger, there's going to see a decrease in knee pain. So, I'm not opposed to leaning into that narrative, as long as we don't make it fear-based and using narratives as you are in pain right now because these are weak, right? We don't want to play the blame game and blame people for their pain because of their muscle weakness. So I'm I'm against that, but I'm I'm not at this point in time. I mean, this might change as the evidence evolves, as I evolve as a clinician and educator. I'm not afraid to lean into, hey, let's get you stronger. That's going to help you be able to do um, X, Y, and Z better. So I think as long as you keep it positive and say that strength is going to help them reach their goal versus telling them, hey, get stronger, it's going to fix your pain. That's where I think we can really be benefits as physios because yeah, absolutely, we want to get people stronger.
0: Yes, I agree with that. We want to get people stronger and also acknowledging that the reduction in symptoms has probably multifactorial biopsychosocial causes to it. And improving strength, thus improving function, is a big factor contributing to that outcome.
1: 100%, 100%.
0: From your experience with working with personal trainers, strength coaches, and physical therapists, what does each profession need to learn more about in order to best serve our clients?
1: I always say like this. I think personal trainers should learn a little bit more about rehab, and I think rehab professionals should learn a little bit more about strength training. I think that's how we close the gap, and that's how I start every course, because I wasn't taught anything about lifting in physical therapy school. So a lot of these physios will come to our courses. They'll have strong clinical reasoning skills, good patient-provider interaction, know how to build rapport, know how to communicate, but they just want some of the hard skills of, well, how do I coach? These lifts from an exercise prescription standpoint. So I think if we can get the physiotherapy profession more educated on lifting and how to coach lifts within that biopsychosocial model, I think that's going to help a lot from that side of things. On the flip side, I think personal trainers need to learn a little bit more about rehab. Reason being is yes, there's a scope of practice thing. We don't want personal trainers diagnosing. We don't want them Assessing and doing manual therapy and telling people you are in pain because you have this diagnosis and it's going to take this long, right? We don't want personal trainers doing that. That's stepping outside of scope. But, but how often do personal trainers work with people who have aches and pains all the time? How often do personal trainers get a referral from a physical therapist, where somebody is now three months out of a rotator cuff repair, the physical therapist did everything that they need to do. And now they have some higher level goals that they want to achieve. Working with that client takes a little bit of knowledge on just rehab principles and how to safely strength train in the presence of symptoms without flaring them up all while getting people towards their meaningful goals. So I think if we close this gap a little bit right? The bridge the gap is such a cliched term these days. But I think that's really how we do it is teaching personal trainers a little bit more about rehab and teaching physical therapists a little bit more about lifting.
0: Hmm. How can physiotherapists work better with fitness professionals?
1: I think this is a two way street. I think that physical therapists should realize that upon discharge, Instead of just sending somebody home with a band and telling them to do exercises in their basement, which we all know the adherence level isn't that high. I think physical therapists should be a little less hesitant and a little bit more forthcoming with referring to personal trainers at the end of a physical therapy plan of care, right? You just inspired somebody. To exercise well hopefully hopefully they had a good experience with you hopefully they saw how exercise makes them feel better can help decrease their pain and hopefully now they're inspired to continue that journey refer out to a personal trainer don't be afraid and on the flip side i think personal trainers should also realize when a client would be best sent off to a physical therapist for more of a evaluation and i always say it like this if a personal trainer can make modifications to somebody's form or modifications to somebody's programming. And that helps keep pain at bay and under control, do it. But if you are trying all kinds of form modifications and all kinds of programming modifications and their pain is still there, they're not reaching their goals, refer out to a physical therapist, preferably one that understands a little bit about lifting, right? Not one that they're just going to lie on a table with a hot pack and ultrasound and hope for the best, Uh, But that's how I see both professions have something to bring to the table. We can work harmoniously. There's business for everybody. And it doesn't need to be this battle of, well, I don't want to refer either way. There's When done optimally, it can benefit all three parties, patient, strength coach, and physio.
0: Practically speaking, how would a physiotherapist know which personal trainer to trust and refer (laughs) a client out there and, and vice versa?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple different routes you can go here. Number one, if you're a physical therapist, get out into gyms and start working out, start meeting personal trainers. Like you can't beat face to face connection and start letting them work at their gyms, like go work out at their gyms, meet them, start chatting with them, start introducing yourself, letting them know what you do. And you can just kind of organically start to build these relationships and start to see what kind of personal trainers you can trust and which ones maybe you should stay away from. So yeah, just get out there. That's number one. And on the flip side, doing the same thing as for personal trainers, getting out there, reaching out to local physical therapists, preferably communicating with the ones who are already on the gym scene. There's a lot of physios that work out of like independently owned gyms, at least in here in the States. I'm not sure how it is in Canada at this time, but Yeah. Just getting out there and talking and networking. Number two, social media is a huge, huge way to find other like-minded individuals in your, especially locally too. look up some local businesses, go to their Instagram pages. What are these physical therapists posting on their Instagram pages? Are they showing a bunch of images and videos of modalities or are they showing videos of clients actually doing exercises and getting moving, right? So social media can be a good way to kind of vet and sort through, well, is this person gonna be a good person to refer to? And then finally, I have to do a shameless self-plug because this is something that I'm super passionate about we have a website, barbellrehab.com directory, where people get to list themselves as either clinicians or coaches who have taken our course. So everybody up on that database, that free database right now, should not be telling people that exercise is bad for their joints. We tried to make a, a nice one-stop shop where we have a list of both professionals that can help folks.
0: Both of us have a bias for strength training. What if... The client coming to us in pain, just don't want to participate in strength training.
1: Okay. Well, let's find out what they're willing to participate in. More often than not, if somebody doesn't want to strength train, you can at least encourage some sort of stretching. Now let's, let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit, but not too far. Cause that could be an entire separate podcast. Maybe it's somebody that has like some sort of negative belief about strength training. They don't want to do it. It's too difficult. Stretching can help people. Because what is stretching? Stretching is still the muscle pulling on the tendon, which is going to cause physiological adaptation. So stretching, and the reason why I got so excited about this is because we're just about to release an episode about stretching on our podcast that Dr. Ben Garman did. And I just edited it and it blew my mind because of how we can leverage if people have this belief that, oh, maybe I just need some stretches to fix my pain. We can leverage that because stretching, when it really comes down to it is just low dose strength training. If the muscle contracts versus if the muscle is getting pulled on, it's still pulling on the tendon in the same way. And is still going to cause similar adaptations. So maybe if I have somebody in the clinic for low back pain and they have a strong preference for flexion and they have pain with extension, and maybe they have some sort of reasoning as to why they don't want to strength train. And I'm not going to force that on day one. Maybe I'll just give them some flexion-based stretches because it's going to put them in their directional preference. It's going to make them feel good. It's going to start to desensitize the system. It's going to do something that they feel comfortable doing. And now we're going to start to see a pain reduction all without having to do strength training on day one. Eventually, I'd like to guide this client or patient towards strength training, not from a pain-fixing standpoint, but just from a general health promotion perspective. But if somebody doesn't want to do it, we don't have to force it on day one. We can be creative and kind of leverage other ways of movement to get people feeling better. We just put out a research review today that shows Pilates can help with low back pain, right? So it doesn't always need to be strength training. We need to find what makes that person tick and find what is they're most likely going to be able to adhere to. And that's where we start.
0: This is very interesting. I will refer our audience to listen to your episode on stretching. And I think staying flexible as professionals is very important because no one fits, you know, what we think is the ideal and what we think people should be doing, but you know, stretching can be a form of resistance training. Pilates is a form of resistance training. Jiu Jitsu is a form of resistance training. It's just different ways of putting mechanical stress onto the musculoskeletal system. Back to the definition.
1: You got it. You got it. I think that's the way the industry is heading. And the way a lot of people like me who started out in this industry six to 10 years ago, where we were very dogmatic, like this is the way to get better. I think the ones that are staying up with the evidence are starting to realize that, hey, everything kind of works as long as we're keeping people moving and adherence and encouraging behavioral change, all that fun stuff.
0: What are some areas of research you recommend our audience to look at?
1: So I would say the best thing would be to, well, number one, follow our research roundup. We release three new research studies every month, but it all depends on the type of client that you're working with. Regardless of who you're working with, understanding communication a little bit more can be beneficial for everybody. So any type of education on language, communication skills, Empathy, all of those things can better any coach or therapist, regardless of your clientele. So I would use that as a catch-all. Number two would be then dig into what your specifics are. I like digging into biomechanics research about squats and deadlifts because that's the course we teach. So if you're working with somebody, if you're working with clients who you're routinely using barbell-based stuff, heck yeah. Keep your eyes peeled out for new research on biomechanics of lifts. But I always think I will always come back to language as my home base. So anytime we have a new paper coming out about physiotherapy and the language we use with our clients and how our language affects outcomes, we're all over it.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Language is so powerful. The placebo and the nocebo effects. Oh, yeah. Plays a huge role in patient outcomes, for sure. Yep. So you mentioned you have your com for people to learn more about uh, your company and the courses that you teach and also the research roundup I highly recommend to sign up for research roundup high quality summaries of research indeed like thank you for doing this work uh, just you know once every month it's 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 awesome i like those
1: appreciate that we wouldn't be able to do it without uh, Dr Miles Nicholas and Dr Ben Garman so Give them the credit because I'm the one who puts it together. So I get to learn from them too.
0: Amazing. Uh, Where do people follow you on social media?
1: Our most active platform is going to be Instagram. So give us a follow at Barbell Rehab. Super easy to remember. Shoot me a DM if you want to chat. I try and answer as many as I can. But that's where we're most active on Instagram.
0: Any concluding thoughts before we wrap up?
1: The biggest one would be keep your people moving. Find a way. Don't always be so zoned in on trying to fix people's pain, help guide them towards their meaningful activities, help encourage strength training, resistance training, aerobic training across the lifespan. And yeah, that would be my concluding thoughts.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Michael.
1: You are welcome. Thanks for having me on Tiffany.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast on strength training. I hope you found it engaging to support our podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast on Spotify or Podbean and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy.